Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. This time I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles if you would. We have the privilege of having Henry Anderson and his wife from TMAI, the Masters Academy International. They're going to be sharing with us from the Word of God. Uh, we've asked them to come down and just open up our hearts as we just consider missions and the God's call for our church. And again, you'll have an opportunity to meet them a little bit later in room 208 after the service. But if you would, please, would you just give him a hand as he comes and just shares with us the Word of God. Well, good morning. It's a real treat to be here, a real privilege to be able to open God's Word with you all this morning. I'm here with my wife, Allie, and uh, we, as Pastor Rob mentioned, uh, work with the Master's Academy International, and we currently fellowship a little north up at Grace Community Church. Um, but so sweet to be with you this morning. Thank you so much for having us. If you would please join me in a word of prayer before we begin our time in God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, our hearts are bathed in the truth of Your Word and singing these songs to You. Father, You have given us more than we can comprehend in sending Your Son to this world to live the perfect life that He did and die the death He did not deserve, that all who believe in Him can come to You and have life eternal. Father, we, we marvel the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we ask that even this morning we would come to know and love Him yet more. Father, may You grant us that great privilege as there are a number of things going on in each and every one's lives here. Different trials, different struggles, different plans. Father, we ask that all those would be set aside, that our hearts might be attuned to what You would say in Your Word to us. Father, may You speak through Your Word this morning and may You receive glory and honor and praise. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, if you would, open up your Bibles. We will be in John 4. And we'll be looking specifically at verses 21 through 24 this morning. What a shame it would be for someone to go through their entire life believing in their heart that they're worshiping God for only on the last day to hear from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ, I never knew you. I never knew you. And yet, there are billions of people in this world to whom that will be said. I never knew you. Every second, two people die. And based on Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, the majority of those are on the broad way to destruction. And based on Acts 17.23, many of them are likely worshiping God in ignorance. There is such a great need for men and women to rise up and take the Gospel to the end of the earth. To these people that they might become worshipers of God. Approximately 150,000 people die every day. Just think about that. 
150,000 people every day. You see, who you worship is of utmost importance. But what we'll see in John 4, 21-24 is that how you worship is equally as important. To worship the right God in the wrong way is just as damning as to worship the wrong God. To worship part of God as though there's such a thing or to not love God means that one does not know God. In our text, what we'll see is Jesus. He exposes this hypocritical, man-centered form of worship. And He shows the proper way that God is to be praised and exalted and honored. He is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Our text before us this morning, John 4.21-24 reads, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Far too many people today believe that they're worshiping the God of the Bible when in reality they're not. In John 4, 21-24, you will see three truths that will cause you to evaluate the way in which you worship God. The first will be found in verse 21. We'll see the place of worship. In verse 22, we'll see the foundation of worship. In verses 23-24, through 24, we'll see the character of worship. We begin this morning towards the start of John's Gospel. We see that Jesus, at, towards the beginning of chapter 4, He's traveling from Judea up north to Galilee. Now the fastest way for Him to get from Judea up to Galilee is to go straight through Samaria. That's the easiest route, but the Jews wouldn't do that. The Jews would avoid Samaria at all costs. They looked down upon the Samaritans. They were a, a group of half-breeds to the Jews. They were part Jew, uh, part pagan. There was an intermarriage that had taken place. And they were looked down by most of the Jews, but not by Jesus. Jesus was seeking worshipers. Our text begins in verse uh, verse 21 with uh, Jesus. He's speaking to the Samaritan woman after she really she raises this controversy about worship, about the place of worship. And what we see is uh, with the Samaritan woman, she talks about in verse 20 before our, our verse that we'll start in that the, the, the Samaritans, they worship in this mountain and then the Jews, they worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus comes and He speaks to her as this one with loving authority. In verse 21, He says, Woman, believe Me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What Jesus does here, He begins by asking her to trust in His Word before he, she ends, inevitably ends up trusting in Him as Lord. He says, believe Me. And when Jesus says woman here, this isn't derogatory. This is actually an endearing way of continuing this conversation that he's entered into with her. This would be the equivalent of saying, miss or ma'am. Jesus is being compassionate to her. He's talking to her directly and he's, he's, he's moving the conversation along. And Jesus has already shown his compassion because he's shown to her earlier on in this chapter that this woman, this precious soul, has a need. Back in verse 10, Jesus had spoken to her about the gift of God given, the living water that He had to offer her. Now this would have been the first time that she would have heard about the living water because she was a Samaritan. And the Samaritans, they only accepted the first five books of the Bible as being of God. 
They only accepted the Pentateuch and they rejected the latter 34 books of the Bible. So a Jew at this time, and you this morning might be thinking, well, living water, that occurs in the Old Testament and it does. Both Jeremiah and Zechariah speak of this living water. But because the Samaritans were ignorant and they chose to reject the latter revelation of Scripture, uh, they were, she wouldn't have known about this living water. This was new news. The Samaritans were like someone going to a drive through window and picking and choosing what they'd like and then rejecting the rest. That's what they did with God. They'd pick and choose what they liked about God, what they wanted to believe. And then they'd reject the rest of what he had to say. And this reject and rejection of God's word was a rejection of God himself. Jesus had also revealed to this woman that he was all-knowing. Think about this. This was the first time that he'd met this woman in person. And he's traveling through Samaria. He sees this woman. And then he begins to unveil all of these things about her life. He begins to talk with her and they just meet in person and he begins to speak of the previous five husbands that she's had. How would a mere man know this? And then he goes on to speak about the adulterous relationship that she was living in currently. He knows all things. And while they had just met in person, Jesus was God, very God. As John 1.3 states, all things came into being through Him, Jesus. And without Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus knew this woman all too well. He fashioned her in her mother's womb as He'd done with David in Psalm 139.13. And so what happens is the Samaritan woman, when she recognizes that this isn't just a mere man, in verse 19 in, this, in, in your Bibles, she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Which is true. Jesus is a prophet. He's speaking the very words of God. This was no mere man peddling a man's message. This was God, very God, delivering His message to man. In Jesus' response in verse 21, He's correcting this false notion concerning worship. And what worship means, it's literally to submit oneself in utter dependence on a higher authority. And what does the Samaritan woman do? The Samaritan woman, she's wondering where the correct place of worship is. She's got in her mind this idea that worship must correspond with a place. It's not a person, not a lifestyle primarily. It's based on a location. And she explains that uh, her people, the Samaritans, they worshipped at this mountain. In this mountain, it refers to Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim, you might remember back in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, uh, curses were shouted from Mount Ebal and blessings were shouted from Mount Gerizim. This is the mountain in which they were worshiping in, worshiping at rather. And then in contrast to the Samaritans, you have the Jews. They were worshiping in Jerusalem. That's where the temple was located, the one that Solomon built and the one that was rebuilt after the destruction of it in 586 by Zerubbabel. That's where they worshiped. So you have Mount Gerizim and you have Jerusalem. And both the Samaritans and the Jews, they believe that they're worshiping rightly based on the location in which they're performing their worship. And this understanding, it stems from an old covenant mindset based on ceremonies and based on the place in which those would be performed. But it was so ingrained in this society that worship was about a place and that worship was not a lifestyle. The Samaritans here, to be clear, they were not worshiping in a proper manner. Not in a manner that was approved of by the Lord. And when Jesus says here that an hour is coming that neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, this would have been earth-shattering to her. This is new news. Her worldview would be like a balloon that Jesus with this truth comes in and pops. It would have gripped her. In her mindset, this is revolutionary because Jesus is speaking of a radical change. Jesus is speaking of this inauguration of the new covenant. Now, not only was Jesus bringing forth somewhat controversial news, at this time he's doing a very controversial thing. Jews in this day, as I mentioned, they didn't travel through Samaria unless they had to. And as verse 4 says, 
Jesus said, He must do so. Now there's no suggestion, nothing given in our text that suggests that uh, the Jewish highway that would lead around Samaria, that that was blocked or that they weren't able to go through that for any reason. Why does Jesus say that He must go through Samaria? He clearly wasn't in a hurry either because in John 4.40, He ends up staying there for two days. Why does Jesus go through Samaria? He does it for the express purpose of going to this specific soul to reach her and meet her with the good news. The Son of God here, He condescends by going to this woman as as He condescended by being God, very God, and becoming a man and living the perfect life that He did. You see, Jesus was on a mission. Jesus was on a mission to deliver a message to this woman who was in need. Jesus was crossing cultural boundaries here. He's leaving Judea Judea, and He's going into Samaria, the land that people wouldn't go to, the land that Jews would look down upon you if you went through. Why would anyone go through Samaria? Why would anyone go to that country, to that location that's looked down upon? And yet Jesus knew that this woman must hear good news, good news about how God is to be worshipped. And she got more than just hearing about the good news, didn't she? She got to meet the good news in person. Jesus Christ, as He delivers this message to her, the incarnate Gospel delivering Himself to her in spite of what others might say. Jesus was concerned. Jesus was burdened that this woman would know the truth. And Jesus, He was wholly devoted to doing the Father's will, not doing what others might say or what others might chirp in His ear. As John 4.34 states, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. That was His aim, was to please the Father. It was so unusual for a Jewish man to travel through Samaria to interact with anyone at all. And it can be seen in verse 9 when the Samaritan woman says, How is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink? Since I am a Samaritan... And then the Apostle John, he adds this note, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And it's also clear based on the disciples' astonishment rather in verse 27 that he was meeting with this woman in Samaria. Be similar to a famous celebrity traveling out of their way to go to Venice Beach, bringing a cup of coffee and sitting down outside of a tent inviting someone out just to have a conversation not for a social cause. I mean, it really is unimaginable what's going on here, that Jesus would do this, that He would go to this woman in particular. Jesus is crossing cultures, and as He begins to interact with the Samaritan woman, she acknowledges that Jesus, He's a prophet, and then she raises up this barrier concerning worship. And Jesus points out what she evidently misses at this point in her life. You see, the Samaritan woman was so focused on the place of worship that she evidently didn't realize the full and true heart of worship at this moment, even though he was standing right in front of her. Is it possible that you have a faulty understanding of worship this morning? Is it possible that You believe that worship only happens here in Orange Villa Bible Church on Sundays or when we sing songs together. The worship certainly does happen here. Think about the Samaritan woman. She believed that worship was to take place and was restricted to this mountain, to Mount Gerizim. This is a present reality in our world today. People have a misunderstanding about worship. Now you might say, Henry, I know worship doesn't only take place here on Sunday. I know that. Does your life prove that? Does your life Monday through Friday reflect your life when you're here in this place? 
Worship is not about a place. It is most primarily about a person. And if you believe that worship only happens here on Sunday, consider what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. If you're in Christ this morning, the call on your life is to present your bodies as a lifestyle, as a, as a, 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 a means of spiritual worship unto God. This means every area of your life is an opportunity to worship God. Whether you eat or you drink, to glory in God. Every moment of your life, your mornings, your afternoons, your evenings, are all to be devoted to God, the one who bought you and set you apart by the blood of Jesus Christ. Worship is not about a place. It is a lifestyle for one that knows God. When it comes to worship, God has standards. And because God has created us and He's the creator of all things, He's the one who gets to determine what those standards are. He has every right to do so. And in verse 22, we'll see these standards. We'll see the foundation of worship. Speaking to the Samaritan woman, Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. After speaking about the place of worship, Jesus speaks of the foundation of worship. And what does Jesus do here? He cuts it straight. Jesus doesn't play around. He gets to the heart of the matter. He has to be direct with this woman because he cares about her. He says, you worship what you do not know. Jesus, you see, he's gone all the way out. He's gone all the way to Samaria in spite of what others might say about him to deliver this message because Jesus cares about coming to those, going to those who do not know him. Think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What Jesus does here is He acknowledges this woman's condition as a precursor to letting her know the proper way in which God is to be worshipped. The word you in verse 22 is plural. So it might look like Jesus is just speaking to this woman. He is, but it's not restricted to her only. Jesus is speaking of the Samaritans at large. He's saying, you, Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. And think, remember, they, re they only believed in the first five books of Scripture. They rejected the rest of what God had to say. And in speaking of God's judgment towards Judah for rejecting His Word, uh, in Isaiah, Isaiah 5.24 says, Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot." and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. Rejection of God's word is met with God's judgment for not obeying Him. The people that Jesus is speaking to, the Samaritans, they were rejecting God by rejecting His word. God demands that His people accept His Word. To not do so is to prove that one doesn't love God at all. Think about this. If I told my wife, if I told Allie that I love her very much, which I do, but then whenever she asked me to do something, if I were to say to her, no, I'm not going to do that, or if by my life I just didn't do whatever she asked me to do, what would I be communicating to Allie? How would Allie feel if I did that to her? And that's exactly what the Samaritan people were doing with God. They were picking and choosing what they wanted to believe. And they were rejecting Him by rejecting what He had called for them to do. The people He had called for them to be. 
Jesus is just exposing this hypocrisy before the Samaritan, Samaritan woman's eyes. And we see this all around us today, don't we? We see people that want to worship certain parts of Jesus, but not all of them. They'll worship Jesus as a God of love, which He is, but scoff at the notion that Jesus is wrathful and is a judge. That Jesus is coming back with a sword coming from His mouth with which He will strike down the nations. You see, Jesus is beautiful because He's both gracious and He's just. You can't just love part of Him. You either love all of who Jesus is or you prove you do not love Him at all. There are many people right now this morning as we're in this place in Southern California who are worshiping what they do not know. Jesus then transitions. He moves. He says, we worship what we know for salvation comes from the Jews. That's the end of verse 22. You see, the Jews, they had a fuller knowledge of God because they accepted the 39 books of the Bible. The Jews were a special people in as much as God had delivered His revelation to them in particular. Romans 3.2 says that they'd been entrusted with the oracles of God. And they had been. They accepted the 39 books of Scripture. They were entrusted with the message of God. Now in saying that salvation is from the Jews. What does Jesus mean? Jesus isn't saying that the Jews are individual dispensers of salvation as though they could muster that within themselves to give out. What He's saying is that salvation is coming from the Jewish line. It's sourced in the Jewish line. In other words, the Messiah, the promised one, the one who would crush the head of the serpent like Genesis 3.15 says, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the Messiah would come from the Jews. And even the Samaritan woman knows this. Verse 25, the Samaritan woman says, I know that Messiah is coming. She knows this. The reason that she knows this is because, remember, the Samaritan woman, though they rejected the latter 34 books of the Bible, they did accept the first five. Genesis 3.15, that's an example of a verse that explicitly speaks of one that's to come, a Messiah, and they believed in Genesis, and so that's in there. There were other passages, certainly, a son of David that would be coming, so on and so forth. So they were aware that there was going to be one that was coming, a Messiah. They had that expectation too. And Jesus is just explaining to her that this salvation, most fundamentally, it is sourced in and comes from the Jews with the arrival of the Messiah. It is such a grace of the Lord, just to take a moment to think about. We have the full oracles of God today in the Scripture. We have all 66 books of what God would have for His people that we might uh, be built uh, and grow in life and godliness. The inerrant Word of God that's God-breathed, the 2 Timothy 3.16 states. But because we have this, we also have a great trust and a responsibility, don't we? Are there ways in your life that you're picking and choosing which portions of Scripture that you want to believe in? Put another way, do you think by just submitting to certain parts, certain portions of Scripture that you'll be okay? Jesus, in speaking to the Samaritan woman, He reveals that their worship was rejected by God. They worshipped what they did not know. But they had, they had five books. Jesus is saying that's not enough. You must submit to all of who God is. You cannot worship only part of God. You must worship all of Him. It's all or nothing. All or nothing with God. For one who's in Christ, the Scripture's clear that you must obey what the Lord has said. To those that choose to reject what He said, Jesus has said, and given us an example in His Scripture of what happens when He says, many will say to Me, 
Did we not perform many miracles in your name? Did we not do many things? And Jesus will say to them on that day, I never knew you. He also will say, you know, many will say, uh, they'll cry out and they'll say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus will say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet not do what I say? God didn't only save part of you. He saved all of you. And for the one who's in Christ, it's clear in Scripture and we obey God. 1 John 5, 3 states, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. That's for all of us. That must be true of our lives. Take a moment to think about your life, about what Scripture says concerning your marriage. Husbands and wives, is your, are your, is your relationship modeled on what God has said in His Word concerning how a marriage is supposed to function? Are you being faithful in serving as a member of this church? Are you invested where the Lord has you today? Are you being faithful in preaching the Gospel as we're all commanded to do? Proclaiming Christ as He's been proclaimed to us by those that have come before. We must submit to what God has said in His Word. To not submit to God is to reject Him. John Piper writes, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate. Not missions because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity but worship abides forever. God is seeking worshipers. This is precisely why God, or why, why God, why Jesus goes to Samaria, who is God. He is on a mission seeking worshipers. How this should be a model for us this morning. Jesus leaves his context. He leaves Judea to meet this woman in particular in Samaria. The kind of worshipers that God is seeking are true worshipers. In verses 23 through 24, we'll see the character of worship. Jesus continues, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. These are God's standards for worship. This is the character of true worship. Jesus travels through the heart of Samaria to tell this woman about the true nature of worship. This is the heartbeat of Jesus' mission and this is the heartbeat of the church today. God still desires worship. And the Gospel alone produces worshipers of God. One commentator writes about the Samaritan woman that Jesus looked into the thirsty and empty soul of this bright and thoughtful woman and saw her longing for truth and holiness. So it was to her that He gave one of His greatest revelations about God. This chapter's following on the heels of John 3 where Jesus interacts with the religious leader of the day that comes to him, Nicodemus. They discuss many things. Jesus tells him that he must be born again. Jesus doesn't give this revelation to him, the one that you might think he would. Instead, he gives it to the one that's humble and contrite in heart, the one that is broken and destitute. When Jesus says the hour is yet coming, this refers to Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus has already mentioned this in the Gospel of John. In John 2.4, uh, speaking uh, well, at the wedding of Cana, uh, He's speaking and He says, My hour has not yet come. 
It's the same, uh, it's looking towards the same thing, the ultimate fulfillment of redemption. Yet because of Jesus' arrival, this arrival, this hour has already begun. This inauguration of worship has, is taking place. It can only fully and truly be realized through Him. John 14, 6 says, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The time has come for true worshipers to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God only accepts worship from those who worship in truth. It's not enough for one to just be worshiping a figment or aspects of God. They must, we, we all must worship God for who He is. It's in contrast to the way of the Samaritans. Their worship was unacceptable. It was not true worship. Now, for, for the Jews, an example being the Pharisees, those that believed that there were the 39 books of the Old Testament Scriptures, but then added their extra-biblical stipulations and their works to the content of Scripture, this type of worship was also rejected by God because they were not worshiping God for who He truly was. They were making God into their own image. The Father is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Now when it says that the word spirit there is not referring to the Holy Spirit, but God is to be worshipped in spirit. Spirit refers to the inner man. God is to be worshipped with all of who one is in a submission to the authority of His person. That's what the call on every man is. It's a, a pure and undefiled worship. Men and women, we must worship God in this manner. And it must be based on the foundation of the truth of God's Word. It's not enough to just be zealous and passionate and be submitting generally. It must all be tacited to the Word of God. This knowledge of God drives devotion for who God is based on His Word. And there are many groups today that worship either in spirit or in truth, but not both. The Mormons, for example, zealous, passionate, submitting to a authority generally, but when it comes to obedience to God's Word, they don't just believe in God's Word. They also believe in the doctrines of covenants and pearl of great price. They add things to God's Word and twist and contort it to where they might be zealous, they might be passionate, they might come to your door, but they worship what they do not know. This worship is rejected by God. They peddle a false gospel and a Christ that cannot save. In the same manner, on the other side of the coin, you have churches meeting this morning where God is not present inasmuch as what they're doing there is not pleasing to God. The Bible might be read. There might be incantations. There might be uh, some dust that's sprinkled around. might be extra works that are added on. They're, they worship with their heads, but their hearts are far from God. You cannot only worship in that manner either. It must, you must worship in spirit and in truth. The both must be together. True worship lives and breathes in spirit and in truth. God demands that those who worship Him worship in that way. And then Jesus goes on in saying, for such people the Father desires to be His worshipers. The Father goes after true worshipers. Those are the ones that the Father delights in. And the proof of that is in Jesus going out of Judea into Samaria to seek out this woman. God desires true worshipers, and He knows. John 2 speaks of Him knowing the hearts of men. He knows the hearts of men, and He knows the true nature of this woman and what will take place to her later on in her life. The reason that God desires this kind of worship is because of who He is. Verse 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. God's non-material. We cannot perceive Him with our senses right now. We can't. Now, all illustrations and explanations fail, but similar to gravity, we can't see gravity. We don't directly feel gravity, though we know it's there because we're not floating around. All things fail. God is spirit, though. This is what our text says. And 
Keep in mind, Jesus too, He was spirit. There was a moment in time when He became flesh. He wasn't always a, a man. The Word became flesh, as John 1.14 says. This is who God is. God is otherly, and yet He reveals Himself. And most clearly we see this as Jesus goes to this Samaritan woman. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Do you worship both in spirit and in truth? Do you worship a God, God in a way that not only engages your head, but one that also engages your heart? To go through life following the outward prescriptions of the Bible without a love for and a true, genuine submission of oneself and one's life to what God has said is to say one of two things about you. Either you're, you're in sin, your conscience is testifying against you, you know that there's something that God is asking of you, you know that His Word is commanding you to do something and, that you, and you've not done that, Therefore, your affections wane. If that's you this morning, I compel you, return to your first love. Run to the Lord. If you know the Lord and you're in that position this morning, you know that only in Him is fullness of joy, as Psalm 16 says. Confess your sin, run to Christ, and obey Him. And if you say, well, I, I don't know that I've ever really experienced you know, a genuine love for who God is, but I know His Word. Friend, it's likely that you don't know God. That you are worshiping what you do not know. But there's good news. Just as Jesus went out of His way to this woman in Samaria, so too He extends this same message to you this morning. God didn't remain in heaven. God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, this perfect one, the perfect example of worship. As He was worshipped, He was fully worshipping Himself being God, worshipping the Father, worshipping the Spirit. This is our perfect example as He goes through a life uh, perfectly. The command on all of our lives is that we would be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. But we've all broken God's law for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Samaritan woman, she's recognizing this as Jesus comes to her, exposing the true nature of worship before her eyes. Jesus was killed by those He came to save. And He rose again on the third day. And He's at the right hand of the Father on high and He is the one that we worship. He's the one that we praise. Friend, if you don't know Him, come to Christ this morning. Believe in this one. And then, and only then, will you be able to worship in spirit and in truth. God is still drawing worshipers. And He may be drawing some of you this morning. God desires worshipers of Him, those that worship in spirit and in truth. His standards haven't changed. He still de desires these true worshipers. And in this text, just beyond the purview of our passage, in John 4.35, Jesus instructs the disciples on the nature of His mission to all peoples. He says, look on the fields, that they are white for the harvest. What Jesus is saying is, the harvest being white is saying the grain is ready to be picked. And he's talking about the spiritual nature of man. Salvation has come. Salvation is available. And that same spiritual harvest that was before the disciples then is before us today. In John 17-18, it's clear that the Father sent the Son into the world. He sent. There was a process. Jesus came to the world for a reason. In Matthew 28-18-20, it's clear that the Son sends His disciples into the world. And in Acts 13, 1-4, it's clear that the church's ministry is to send out its members unto the world. The mission of God is modeled by God Himself. God is on a mission. God is a missionary God. God is redeeming a people for Himself from every tribe, in every tongue, in every nation. And that takes place through the church. 
through being obedient to God's mission. From the beginning, it's clear that God has a purpose in redeeming man, in having a relationship with man. This can be seen throughout the Old Testament as the prophesied Messiah, the one who is to come, inevitably comes at the beginning of the New Testament. And we see Him. Jesus reveals Himself to man and we see in this passage His desire for this woman to be a worshiper of God. And this extends to us today as Jesus sent His disciples out. We hear the words of Matthew 28, 19-20 when Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In what way are you taking a part of this endeavor this morning? How are you involved in this great commission? Just take a moment here. Think about your life. Think about the moment in which you came to Christ, which the Lord drew you to Himself. There's a good chance it was after someone preached the gospel to you. It's a joyous moment as you became in that moment of belief a true worshiper of God. This very morning, there are over three billion people that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Three billion people. And the only way by which those people will become true worshipers of God is through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 14-17 says, How then will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in Him in whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it's written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good things, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. This is exactly what Jesus models for us. He goes bearing this message about the true nature of worship, that this woman might come to know the true God. She inevitably, by the grace of God, becomes a true worshiper of God. This can be seen in John 4.39, which states, from that city, many of the Samaritans, those who didn't worship truthfully, Many of the Samaritans believed in Him, Jesus, because of the word of the woman who testified. He's told me of all the things that I've done. The goal of, wish, of missions is more worship for God, of more worshipers of God. And this happens as more disciples are made, which is an act of the Lord. There is such a great need for men and women to rise up, to go into the mission field, to preach Christ and train up the next generation of those who will do the same. If you've been burdened in any way thinking about missions, maybe thinking about going to the mission field yourself, just ask you to pray about that. Ask you to get in contact with Pastor Rob, Pastor Dustin, if that's on your heart, talk with people about that. There's such a need for people to be going overseas, but there's such a need for people to be supporting missionaries in other ways as well. There are wonderful, wonderful books and programs and things by which you can be praying for different people groups and different people all around the world who have yet to hear about Jesus Christ. You see, God desires worship and in this age, missions is the key to unlock the hearts of those who will worship God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be those that worship in spirit and in truth. May we be those who as Christ did proclaim to others how they too might worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is our model. And in John 4, 21 through 24, the love of God drives the Son of God to preach the Gospel of God to one who doesn't know God. May that be true of us as well.
I want to close our time this morning just by reading a section from the hymn, Facing a Task Unfinished. Uh, This is from Keith and Kristen Getty, their uh, rendition. It says, Where other lords beside thee hold their unhindered sway, where forces that defied thee defy thee still today, with none to heed their crying for life and love and light, unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to see Your heart this morning in this text. Father, we know just as Christ went to this woman, You have sent countless people into the mission field to proclaim the same good news that He did, that You can be worshipped. And the manner that You are to be worshipped is in spirit and in truth. Father, Your heart is so big as You continue to draw those unto Yourself. We ask that You would continue to do that. We ask that we would be able to be a part in some small way of Christ building His church, as Matthew 16, 18 says, in whatever way You would have us be a part of that. Father, we desire to be faithful to You. We desire to be faithful to You with our lips and with our hearts. May You use us. May You move us. May You grow us. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith.orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.